trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thank you so much for joining me. Hour two of The Brian Hyde Show now getting underway. A shout out to our live audience on KTalk 1640 as well as the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And a very special hello, I would give you a hug if it weren't a time of COVID-19, to uh, anybody catching our podcast across all the various platforms on on which it is carried. Come, revel with me in wrong think. I'm okay with it. I embrace it. I really do. Only because I believe that (laughs) there's... There, there are more. There's more than one way to to look at how the world ought to be, and uh, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to pretend like you know my way is the only way that's right, and you're foolish if you don't agree with me. Uh, you can make up your own mind. You're a grown up. I trust you. But I find some really great resources. I am am so blessed to have first of all an inquisitive mind, an inquiring mind, if you will, that wants to know. And also just great resources available. One of the articles I came across earlier today. This was from PJMedia.com. Stephen Green is the author. The headline, Two Americas, Risk Tolerant versus Zero Risk. Will one ruin the other? I mean, you look around us today, how many different things are dividing us? Right? There's a lot of different stuff on which uh, the American populace is divided. This is prob- probably the single biggest division that I am starting to see emerge it's a very curious divide but it's i think this is accurate you have people who are risk tolerant versus those who are zero risk and i'm not sure that these two different americas are able to coexist side by side here's what stephen green has to say in fact he said he starts out right with there really are two americas risk tolerant america and zero risk america but he says before we get to that i'm afraid i have some very good news for you Americans are catching the Wuhan virus at record rates. Now, he says, if you're a card-carrying member of Zero Risk America, your panties just spontaneously wadded. Those of us who live in risk-tolerant America, and he says, if you're a regular vodka pundit or PJ Media reader, I'm guessing that includes you, understand that this is very good news indeed. Still, some details would be helpful in order to explain our two Americas. So he says, for that, let's go to the famous or infamous, according to our zero-risk compatriots, lockdown skeptic himself, Aaron Ginn. Aaron Ginn says, what you've been hearing, this is regarding the Houston, Texas hospital capacity update. What you've been hearing is a report that we are at 97% or so capacity. Exactly one year ago, it was at 95%. It is completely normal for us to have ICU capacities that run in the 80s and 90s. That's how all of us operate hospitals. Now, Stephen Green says, as you probably know by now, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has paused lifting his state's shutdown on reports of record numbers of new COVID-19 infections due to the Wuhan coronavirus. Abbott's decision isn't very popular with risk-tolerant America. In fact, Texas bars are suing to get out from under the renewed lockdown. Something similar is going on in Colorado, where Governor Jared Polis, 
has made a similar decision for the same reason. And Stephen Green says, keep all that in mind as we revisit Ginn's Twitter Twitter thread. The media and no doubt Governor Abbott caved under media pressure, breathlessly reported that Houston's ICUs were nearly maxed out at 97% capacity at a time when Wuhan was spreading, well, like a plague. But he says, given how expensive it is to run an ICU, that's how they typically operate. You can't have a bunch of expensive trauma doctors and nurses just sitting there 24-7 waiting for patients who might never come. What ICUs have is the ability to rapidly and dramatically increase their capacity in case of a major emergency. So here's another tweet from Aaron Ginn. The capacity that's being reported is base capacity. We have the ability to go far higher than that in terms of the ICU beds. We're seeing younger patients. We're seeing a shorter length of stay. We're seeing lower immortality, and we are seeing lower ICU utilization. End quote. So Stephen Green says, even as Texans catch the Wuhan virus as never before, there has been no need to surge ICU capacity. Patients are younger, healthier, getting better faster, and, this is important, not dying. Being risk tolerant is to understand there are no perfect solutions. There are only trade-offs. Zero Risk America believes that if they take no risks, nothing bad will happen. But Stephen Green says that's nothing more than magical thinking of the most dangerous kind. Here's another tweet from Aaron Ginn. We just saw a rash of people that came in for relatively treatable conditions that had just waited to the point that it deteriorated. That's kind of added to the ICU stress on top of just having the COVID patients. That's from Dr. Robert Hancock, Texas College of Emergency Physicians. So if your zero risk tolerance leads you to skip an elective surgery until you've gotten so sick that your surgery is no longer elective, then you're actually creating a greater risk by trying to avoid the lesser risk, says Stephen Green. Risk tolerant America understands this and tries to plan accordingly. There is no scenario, not one, where a long enough lockdown will somehow make the Wuhan pandemic go away without anyone getting sick and dying. In fact, there is certainly some minimum figure of how many will get infected, how many of those will get sick, and how many of those will die. In places like New York, they busted right past the minimum figure by requiring nursing homes to take the infected in and put them right next to the most vulnerable. Most other places we've discovered that while the Wuhan virus is a nasty and highly contagious little bug, it isn't nearly as deadly as feared. He says risk-tolerant America sees the rising number of Wuhan infected and the declining number of daily deaths and thinks we're past the worst. Time to get back to work. Zero Risk America looks at those exact same facts and concludes it's time for another lockdown. So Stephen Green says our problem as a nation is that our federalist system has become so centralized that there's less and less elbow room for people of differing opinions. Two Americas, but increasingly one set of overly stringent rules. Tens of millions of risk-tolerant Americans are being forced to live under zero-risk rules, whether we want to or not. And in so doing, we're delaying the onset of herd immunity, increasing the health and economic risks for the country as a whole. That's really interesting. There's another article linked to this, by the way. Two Americas Don't Be Fooled. Recent coronavirus data suggests the lockdowns were a colossal mistake. 
Now, again, I'm not telling you this is the only way that you should be seeing things. But isn't it refreshing to have something other than that daily drumbeat of fear and dread and the calls for compliance? Isn't it nice to see that there are people thinking about this and approaching it from a slightly different angle? All right, let's open up the phones. 801-331-8113. Hello there. Welcome to the show. Yeah, Brian, I, you know, the lockdowns, they didn't work. Didn't do anything. You know, it, didn't, it didn't stop the virus. No, no. It, it pushed out the number of infections and, and the uh, swiftness with which it was spreading, or at least it slowed it down. But you're right. It didn't, uh, it didn't stop the virus at all. I think... Uh, I think government needs to just stay out of it as far as, you know, it's, it's like if you don't want to catch the flu, you don't want to go hang out in the emergency room. No. People who need to make their own decisions would be the best thing, you know, and, and this whole racism thing. I mean, I'm seeing things on Facebook and people are like, what's wrong with stopping racism? I mean. <laughs> I didn't know we were advocating for keeping it. There's so many people to try to convince in this world. It, it, it's been around long before you, were, you and I were born, and it'll be around long before you and I die. And the bottom line is people just need to go about their lives. If they want to be racist, let them be racist. That's their choice. If they don't want to be racist, that's even better. Lead by example. Yeah, I mean, it seems like to me that the government, these politicians are pretty much behind most of these racist, you know, starts, that they, that start it, the, the animosity, to get the people, you know, in an uproar. You know, the thing in Provo the other day, I don't know if you heard about that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we've talked about it. Well, I talked to a firefighter the other day, and he was down there. And he says, you know, the, peace, the protest was very peaceful, but then all of a sudden a bus load came in from Texas with Texas license plates. And that's when all the, the, the uh, rioting started. That's when it started getting crazy. Yep, I, ha- I agree. It's, there's a lot of contrived outrage, some of it having to be bussed in. That's how contrived it is. Listen, I appreciate your call, Rob. i got to take a quick break. We'll pay a couple of bills. This is The Brian Hyde Show. We'll be back. Hey, welcome back to the show. This is Brian Hyde. You can call in at 801-331-8113. I'm going to be spending some time talking about COVID-19 this hour just because I know there's a lot of back and forth and there's a lot of uh, wrangling going on. Should we shut things down again? Did we do it too soon? And, you know, I I have to admit, I am I am fighting tooth and nail to, to not feel contempt towards many members of the media for the way that they approach COVID-19, because it seems like they're, they they try to sensationalize, make it so scary. And, oh, look at this. It's it's the most terrifying thing, you know, as, as if this wasn't expected. I mean, look, I, I don't know how you put it into proper perspective. I'm not trying to minimize that. Yeah, you want to be careful. And 
especially if you know somebody who's in a uh, an at-risk category. You don't want to be the one spreading disease in their direction. At the same time, the death rate is going down, even though the infection rate is going up. The testing rate has gone up dramatically, so it stands to reason that the infection rate would go up. They're detecting more people who have had it. I've actually seen a couple of different stories saying that we may actually be approaching herd immunity sooner than later. But in order for that to happen, more people have to catch and get over the virus. And if that sounds cold or if that sounds somehow, well, you know, very disconnected from concern for the people who would be most at risk, just keep in mind. The survival rate is still above 99%. So it's, it's not like, oh my gosh, we're all dropping like flies. It's just keep it in perspective, keep in perspective who is at most risk, and then weigh those risks and decide for yourself. A friend of mine posted this on Facebook earlier. This is from her cousin. And I, I really appreciate this take. I know not everybody will agree with it, but for what it's worth... She says, I see a whole lot of people who don't wear masks are selfish and putting everyone else in danger. To which this woman says, no, stop. Do you know what's selfish? Passing off responsibility for your health to everyone else around you. It doesn't work that way. Your health is your responsibility. My health is mine. Trust me. You don't want me in charge of your health because I'll swoop in and I'll toss out all of your junk food, processed crap, fill your your fridge with fruits and veggies, force you to drink water, take quality supplements, fill your air with essential oils, exercise daily, meditate daily, reduce your stress levels, and get plenty of sleep. (laughs) Take that. She says, my freedoms don't end where your fear begins. We are all adults that make our own decisions regarding the level of risk we're willing to take in everyday life. It is only our own responsibility if we are healthy or sick. By divine design, we are a free people. By divine design, we are a free country. Now, there are dark forces that are determined to prey upon our human fears and make us forget our most important responsibilities, ourselves. Know this. That every soul is free, and fear is not a godly motivator. When I trust in my God, fear does not control me. If you want to wear a mask, bleach everything around you, wear gloves, and never touch anything or anyone, do it. I'll totally support you. But in doing so, please do not pass on responsibility for your health to me. Now, that sounds reasonable to me, but then again, I'm, I'm one of those uh, risk-tolerant types and not, uh, you know, zero-risk types. I feel like what drives that, that need to be in control and that fear of, oh, but if we don't do this, we're all going to die, is the way that the media reports, or at least even some, some of the people in authority report the ongoing, you know, infections. There's a great article on the American Institute for Economic Research. This is from Edward Peter Stringham. Why we should not be concerned about increasing COVID-19 cases in Texas. Now, if you're knee-jerked at the thought of how insensitive we should not be concerned, listen to what he is saying here. He's not saying that we shouldn't pay attention. He's just saying, don't let the fear rule your life. And this is a great explanation of why, for instance, the cases in Texas that are being used to justify this is why we have to shut it all down everywhere. Maybe not so fast. Consider this. 
Edward Peter Stringham says, should we be concerned about the total number of COVID-19 deaths or COVID-19 cases that do not result in death? On June 29th, 2020, former New York Times reporter Alex Berenson and an important alternative voice on COVID-19 received a note from a managing partner of the medical care facilities Complete Care in Texas. The author tells of what's happening on the ground, and it differs dramatically from the headlines driving Texas officials to once again close up the economy in a panic over a rise in cases. He says, recall that the original idea of flattening the curve was not to make the virus go away, but to slow the spread of infections to prevent hospitals from getting overwhelmed in the short run. This was never an issue in Texas. The stay-at-home order for two weeks was meant to buy time for hospitals to get enough equipment and deal with patients over time rather than all at once. And the good news is that hospitals never were overrun. Now, it also turns out that COVID-19 deaths were a fraction of the most alarmist predictions that drove public policy. And over time, that COVID-19 deaths continue to decrease. But now we hear about rising cases, not deaths. And that is introducing more calls for lockdowns and travel bans. Now, Edward Peter Stringham says what the letter reports will not shock anyone who has followed cases following the reopening period. The cases are mostly young people who are in very little danger from the virus. What, that, what should be considered good news, that the case fatality rate is falling each day, is being misinterpreted by the press. As for this gentleman's willingness to speak out, he points out this is a heroic act in these strange times. He worries about becoming a target, and it's a legitimate concern. Even so, the truth needs to come out. The American Institute for Economic Research gives the letter, originally posted on Berenson's Twitter feed, a full airing. It says, Good morning. I am the managing partner and general counsel of a Texas-based company that owns and operates 13 freestanding emergency clinics in the state of Texas. I follow your reporting and wanted to share with you some information on Texas. I want people to hear this story as opposed to the mainstream reporting. However, I am sensitive about putting a target on myself or my company, for conveying this information. I'm not sure how you've handled this type of situation, but I suspect you've had other people send you information who were concerned about becoming a target. He says, in June, we tested over 2,231 patients. That was data through last Thursday. Positive rate is now close to 20%. It was 4 to 6% in May. Vast majority of the cases are mild to very mild symptoms. Average age of the people getting tested in mid-30s. Very different patient in terms of age than we've seen before June. Most of these patients would not have met criteria that we previously had and all the health facilities had for COVID testing. Now with more testing kits, we are able to test a broader group of patients. Clinically, he says we've had very few hospital transfers because of COVID. Vast majority of patients are better within two to three days of the visit and most would be described as having a cold, a mild one at that, or the symptoms related to allergies. We've often provided a steroid shot and some antibiotics. By the time we have follow-up calls, most of the patients are no longer experiencing any symptoms. They often say the shot really made a difference. In terms of what is driving them to the ER, roughly half have been told by their employers to get a test. They have a sneeze or a cough and their employer tells them, go get tested. The other half just want to know. They have mild symptoms, and some don't have any symptoms, but game the system and check a box that they have a symptom so they can get a test. 
They cannot get a test unless they present with symptoms. If they have no symptoms, we send them away, which does happen. The average length of stay for COVID patients is three to five days, much lower than patients being seen in April and early May. Their symptoms are also milder. Most of the patients are not ending up in ICU. The hospital ICUs are filled with really sick people with non-COVID issues. They didn't come in earlier because they were scared. Now they are super sick. From multiple sources at different hospitals, they have plenty of capacity and no shortage of acute care beds. We'll come back to this letter in a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. We'll be right back. Hey, thanks for joining us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you so much for being a part of our audience. Going to open up the phone lines here in just a moment. I want to finish this letter from a managing partner and general counsel of a Texas-based company that owns and operates 13 freestanding emergency clinics in the state of Texas. This is in an article that was written by Edward Peter Stringham for the American Institute for Economic Research. And the, the, the key here is, look, there are increasing cases of COVID-19 being reported in Texas. But as he describes in this letter, the positive rate now being close to 20 percent, it was four to six percent in May. The vast majority of these people are much younger. The vast majority of the cases are mild to very mild symptoms. The average stay of a covid patient three to five days, much lower than the patients who were seen earlier in April and early May. Symptoms are milder. People are not ending up in ICU. So when you hear that, well, you know, the intensive care units are almost at capacity, they're almost always at capacity anyway. If they're at 97% normally, like this time last year, they were at 95%. It's not the crisis that it is being made out to be. The letter goes on to say, no real data on breakdown of patients who have COVID but are not in the hospital because of COVID. Recognition that because all patients are tested for COVID, you have some percentage of patients listed as COVID patients who are non-COVID symptomatic and that the hospitalization rate is somewhat driven by hospitals taking their normal patients with other medical issues. And finally, he says, heard several stories of how discharge planners are being pressured to put COVID as primary diagnosis as that pays significantly better. Hospitals want to avoid the discussion that they don't want to risk another shutdown. But if they don't, rather, they risk another shutdown. This may be an explanation for why there is a gap in hospital executives saying they have plenty of capacity and the increasing number of COVID hospitalizations. You open up your hospitals for normal medical care. You test every one of those patients. The result is higher percentage of patients who have COVID now. He says, overall, based on what we are seeing at our facilities, the above information is really a positive story. You have more people testing positive with really minimal symptoms. This means that the fatality rate is less than commonly reported. End quote. So Edward Peter Stringham says, so thus we have firsthand confirmation of what we've suspected. So many of the new cases are among the young, and so many of the infected have no symptoms or mild symptoms. 
Previously, we had less capacity to do testing. So many people with COVID-19 went undiagnosed. Now that we're doing more testing, more people who would have been undiagnosed are being diagnosed, thus the upward trend in diagnosed cases. But the good news is the deaths continue to decrease even as we find more previously undiagnosed cases. It's got a great chart, too, that illustrates this. I'll show that in the in the show notes, which you can find at LovingLiberty.net. Let's go to the phone, 801-331-8113. Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. I always appreciate you taking my call. You know, I, I think I want to rename your show The Brian High Road. <laughs> that's, that's what I see it as. Um, three quick points now. Okay. So, you know... In, in the stock market, there are so many losers because it's mostly run by fear and greed. And if we look at, you know, viruses and everything, life through either fear or greed, that's a, a failed, failed uh, way to do it. Uh, what, you know, I mean, every winner, you know, are our policy leaders and the fake news sensationalizers. You know, going to shut down our economy for all cold, flus, and viruses every year. You, you know, I mean, okay, I just wanted to touch on that real okay. quick. And then, and then the te- second thing real quick, you know, as far as defending the police, you know, I mean, come on. Are, are we going to go back to the cowboy days where all of us citizens wear a six-shooter on our hip? You, you, you know, that this... It, it, the people have no sense. This is ridiculous. You know, we can't go back to the cowboy days. Come on, you know, retain the police. I mean, we do have a problem with the unions, with the teachers and the police. But um, I'm going to push back but, just gently on this one, um, Ray. Okay. I, I think that the, the kind of reform that needs to take place is I think that we should be willing to accept more responsibility. But part of doing yeah. that means we stop making everything a police matter. Less laws, especially, do I dare say it, BS laws, those little stupid malaprohibita laws that, that the Karens and the Kyles of this world want to use to control everybody around them. Let the police focus on actual crimes that create an actual victim and, and for the purpose of bringing them to justice. And, and that hold police accountable, hold them to the same level of conduct that we would be held to in terms of, you know, um, use of force. If it wouldn't be justified for us, you know, to drop the hammer on somebody, they shouldn't be doing that as well. But but that's that's as that's as far as I want to push back. I think there are reforms needed, but I'm I'm not ready to to say therefore do away with them all and every man for himself. I think we just saw what every man for himself looked like in Seattle, and that wasn't so pretty, was it? No, it wasn't. I agree with you. We can't do away with the police and have police go into situations where they're counselors and they're unarmed. I mean, this is ridiculous. Violence always escalates. And if violent people will de-escalate and cooperate with the law, the rule of law and order, then fine. But if they're going to escalate, then they're the one that has a problem because the police are trade, trained to treat the lawbreaker, either a ticket or an arrest, you know, to the equal force that, that they're being resisted. You, you know, we can't go back to the cowboy days. We can't do this. Well, th- here's, you know, here's where I would like to see us go back to the cowboy days. They were peace officers. They were peace officers, first and foremost, meaning that their job was to help keep the peace as opposed to enforce every rule. 
So you reduce the number of rules or laws that, that criminalize things or make things a, a matter of, you know, subject to, to the state's punishment. Let them go back to, to focusing on keeping the peace and, and they can deal with the people who are actually out there causing harm without having to inject themselves into the lives of people who uh, are, are doing things that, that either are, are victimless or that, that really are, are petty enough. We should be able to handle them without police intervention. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, no question. I, I mean, you know, back in the cowboy days, someone robbed a bank. Well, the, the sheriff quickly deputized citizens, yep. and they went out and caught the bank robbers. And it was in their interest to come together for that purpose. You know, it was like, come on, we're we're protecting our community. And and unfortunately, the more we outsource it, well, government, you take care of this for us. The less connected we are to uh, taking care of our community and actually the more controlling government becomes because, well, you wanted me to. So, you know, pick up that can, citizen. So the neighbors and the sheriff knew who the hotheads were and kept them out of the posses, you know, and and. uh, so okay, and the and the the last quick point is that um, you know if if Biden gets elected as a, you know he is a Trojan horse that was an amazing point, well point, you know then everything's going to be swept under the rug and and these people are going to continue um, robbing you know and, and plundering America and the world you know but but if Trump gets you know, becomes president again, then justice is going to keep moving forward. And um, the, the three and the 10 and the 33, these these people, we have the evidence and they're going to prison. And, and maybe Hillary, I don't know, maybe she shouldn't go to prison. Maybe she should give um, the hundred and fifty billion dollars to the um, to the government. You know, these people that's been plundering the government, I don't know. But, you know, the American system, let it work. Hey. You know. Very good. Ray, thank you so much for your call. Have a great fourth, too, if we don't get a chance to talk tomorrow. 801-331-8113. I've got three other quick articles that I would like to touch on. Um, this is a great one from economist uh, Tyler Cowen. Uh, Now, you may disagree with what he's saying here because he makes the case. He says, you know what? As the number of COVID-19 cases starts to rise again, the question is whether residents of those states will tolerate another lockdown. And he actually says maybe we do need more lockdowns. But he says it's increasingly clear Americans have become comfortable with a remarkably high number of casualties. And he says there's a mechanism of social conformity that's at work here. For instance, most people will not tolerate a small risk to their lives to dine out, for instance, but they might if all their friends are doing the same. The appeal of the restaurant, he says, isn't just the food. It's the shared experience in the sense that others are doing it too. But the danger lies in the potential for ratchet effects. If hardly anybody's eating or going out to bars, you might be able to endure the deprivation. But once others have started doing something, you're probably going to feel compelled to join them, even at a greater risk to your life. So he says America will need more lockdowns, but Americans don't want them. And by the way, it doesn't help when we are being told, well, you are stupid and you are too sociable. <laughs> that uh, that just makes us want to uh, go out there and do our own thing even more. All right, we got to take a break. We'll be back. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, it hasn't escaped my attention that we are fast closing in on Independence Day. And I say this most years, it's like, what are we really celebrating? Are we just going through the motions? Come on, is it just about the, the hot dogs? Is it about the fireworks and the parades and the patriotic music? I think this year is going to be the first year for a lot of people that maybe, just maybe, they start to realize what is on the line. Maybe this will be the year they actually question, what does it mean to be independent? And I don't mean that we should sit around, you know, nasal gazing the whole, navel gazing rather, the whole weekend and just, you know, let us let us contemplate life and where we're missing the, you know, the, the whole point. But if you don't have a sense that the freedoms that we celebrate, and I mean joyously celebrate every year on the 4th of July, if you're not getting a sense that those are slipping away from us and quickly, you're not paying attention. A couple of articles that I want to share with you. I'll just share a couple of excerpts here. One is from James Bovard, brilliant, talented writer, Great way He has a great way of just putting things into perspective. It's titled, Independence Day in the Midst of Dictatorship. And he starts by asking, how many Americans will greet July 4th Day with gratitude that their governor is no longer compelling them to shelter in place or stay at home so they can celebrate their freedom? He says most of the media is ignoring the fact that this Independence Day is occurring under the most dictatorial restrictions of the modern era. But anyone who values their liberty must recognize the great political unleashing that has occurred this year makes a mockery of the Founding Fathers' intentions. Earlier this year, more than 300 million Americans were constrained by stay-at-home decrees by governors and mayors. And these restrictions were justified by mortality predictions from COVID-19 that turned out to be wildly exaggerated. But most of the media has presumed that the dictates were legitimate because they were supposedly based on, quote, science and data, regardless of pervasive wrong-headed forecasts. Well, the Centers for Disease Control estimated last week that 24 million Americans may have been infected with COVID, making a mockery of lockdowns designed to force citizens to pay any price for the slightest potential reduction in infections. And here James Bovard asks, do America's politicians and media have any special suggestions on how the tens of millions of people who lost their jobs due to the shutdowns should celebrate Independence Day? How should small business owners who've been bankrupted mark July 4th? He says governors across the nation earlier this year proved that the Bill of Rights is a parchment barrier that can be easily shredded by invoking their emergency powers. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer prohibited all public and private gatherings of any size, prohibiting people from visiting friends, and also prohibited purchasing seeds for spring planting in stores after she decreed that a non-essential activity. Many Michigan counties have less than a handful of COVID cases and few, if any, fatalities. But their economies have been obliterated by Whitmer's stateside decree, statewide decrees, rather, which have driven unemployment up to 24%. Just two weeks ago, Whitmer railed that legislators' attempts to take away my authority were irresponsible, dangerous, and foolish. That's what it looks like to be drunk on power. He talks about Maryland's politicians and their COVID crackdown, destroying more than 400,000 jobs. 
Oregon Governor Kate Brown banned that state's 4 million residents from leaving their homes except for essential work, buying food, and other narrow exemptions. She also banned all recreational travel. Almost 400,000 Oregonians have lost their jobs after Brown's shutdown. And on and on, he lists case after case after case. And isn't it interesting how the media and politicians heaped derision on people who publicly protested against the lockdowns that were actively destroying their livelihoods? But after a Minneapolis policeman brutally killed George Floyd, these same politicians cheered as mass protests erupted in cities across the nation. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio sent police to disperse attendees at an Orthodox Jewish funeral for violating his restrictions on public gatherings, but he endorsed mass protests against police brutality. 1,200 health professionals signed a letter declaring, we do not condemn these gatherings as risky for COVID-19 transmission. We support them as vital to the national public health. And James Bovard says any tattered remnant of credibility retained by public health officialdom was shattered when they declared that supporting protests against police brutality should not be confused with a permissive stance on all gatherings, particularly protests against stay-at-home orders. Wow. He says, who knew that COVID-19 only infects deplorables and reactionaries? The bottom line is, this pandemic pried open authoritarian Pandora's boxes at all levels of government. Trump's Justice Department asked Congress to approve suspending habeas corpus for the duration of the pandemic. Norman Reimer, executive director of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, warned you could be arrested and never brought before a judge until they decide that the emergency or the civil disobedience is over. The same type of pre-arrest power could be ex exercised to detain anyone suspected of being infected or failing to obey lockdown orders. Republican Utah Senator Mike Lee, one of the most principled members of the Senate, tweeted in response to news of the power grab over my dead body. So there, there's, uh, there's some pretty serious evidence here about the kind of dictatorship that has been erected around us. What did state, federal, and local politicians and health officials know? When did they know that many of the restrictions they imposed were unnecessary, if not counterproductive? How many states covertly adjusted their formulas or data standards to justify perpetuating lockdowns? How many states have lied or covered up their policies on sending COVID patients to nursing homes, a catastrophe that killed thousands of the elderly? All that was necessary to destroy the limits on political power was wild-eyed extrapolations of potential infection rates. James Bovard says the last few months have established the prerogative of governors and other officials to slap on a tourniquet and cut off the economic blood supply for as long as they claim necessary. And he says the ease with which politicians have captured boundless power should be chilling to anyone who's not a fan of Mussolini. And many governors appear itching to reimpose restrictions based on any uptick in infections elsewhere in the nation. He says the great pandemic follies of 2020 have been based on the illusion that government could make life risk-free. But the advocates of shutdowns, lockdowns, and endless prohibitions ignore the risk of dictatorship. And that was what our forefathers fought against almost 250 years ago. And their sacrifices and courage should inspire today's Americans to take far less guff from their rulers.
Amen, bro. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Again, you can check them out at lovingliberty.net. One final article that I would like to recommend for your uh, consideration. It's called Choosing Liberty in a Time of Contagion and Financial Ruin. And I know this is going to shock some people, but do you realize we are not the first people to find ourselves in precarious times? Carolyn Brashears, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, gives some great background on, uh, on some historic times where people were facing financial ruin, facing epidemic or pandemic, and they had a choice to make. She specifically refers to in 1720 as the bubonic plague was devastating France, killing 100,000 people in Marseille and surrounding areas. Writing the second of Cato's letters from London, Thomas Gordon noted, we have already had and still have a contagion, a contagion of another sort, more universal and less merciful than that at Marseille. What contagion could be worse than the plague? It was the spread of financial ruin caused by the collapse of the South Sea bubble, the destruction of our trade, the glory and riches of our nation, and the livelihood of the poor. For Gordon, he said, it had rendered a much greater number of lives miserable who want but the sickness to finish their calamity. This is a great article, and, and it's, it's wonderful because it provides historical perspective of why we should make general liberty the interest and choice, as it is certainly the right of all mankind, and brand those as enemies to human society who are enemies to equal and impartial liberty. Carolyn Brashear says this, let people alone and they will take care of themselves and do it best. Now, that doesn't mean people will always make the right choices, but they will do so more often than the government and that in doing so, they pursue the best path to a free society. She says it's time our political leaders remembered that returning to Cato's letters as our founding fathers did. As citizens, she says we can also use Cato's advice to navigate the tricky terrain of our recovery, facing both COVID-19 and the contagion of financial ruin. We must think for ourselves, resist the encroachment on our liberties, and choose liberty. Liberty. 